welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast on the science of sport, training, nutrition, physiology, and much more. I'm managing editor Chris Case, and as always, I'm joined today by a Canadian not necessarily the great one, but a Canadian nonetheless, Coach Trevor Connor. Today, we ask the question, what does it take to stand on the podium at the World Championships? It's a simple question without a simple answer. Strength buys you a seat at the table, but playing a winning hand takes effective training, teamwork, near-perfect strategy, and an incredible mindset. In today's episode, we take a deep dive into all the elements that are needed for a podium placing at Worlds, and we have the great pleasure of having sat down with two of the members of the Canadian team, two superstars of the Canadian team, Mike Woods and Rob Britton. Two of them, along with their team of coaches, asked that simple question over a year before the 2018 World Championships in Innsbruck. Canada doesn't have the biggest reputation as a cycling powerhouse, nor does it have the best funded team. But together, they found the answers and earned Mike the bronze medal, an incredible achievement. So today, we're going to cover how they did that. First, why Canadians think they rule and Americans drool? Oh, that's that line that Trevor nicely begged me to say, eh? How the race played out to put Mike in a position to fight for the podium. Next, we'll talk about Rob Britton's all-day breakaway that helped put Mike in that position. We'll delve into the final hell climb, as Rob likes to call it, how it was central to Mike's strategy, the sort of numbers he put out on the climb, and why those numbers don't tell the full story. Next, we'll talk about the finale and why in a moment, the excitement of a podium temporarily turned into a disappointment for Woods. Next, we'll talk about a comparison of Mike's and Rob's very different preparations for Worlds. They couldn't really be that much different on the surface of things. Mike used the Tour of Utah and the Vuelta to get his legs ready. Rob, on the other hand, loaded his bike up with 50 pounds of gear and did a very low-tech ride across half of Canada. Yet both riders arrived with great legs, and perhaps more importantly, great mindsets. Finally, we'll talk with Rob and Mike about how they balanced their training, including the balance of long, slow-volume threshold work and VO2 max training, and how training for a seven-hour event like Worlds differs from the local two-hour race. Our primary guests today are, of course, the Canadian superstars themselves, Mike Woods of the EF Education First Trade Team and Rob Britton of Rally Cycling, both riding for Canada at Worlds. Mike, who comes from a running background, exploded onto the scene five years ago, since then has raced multiple Grand Tours, which has included a stage win at the Vuelta this year. Rob has dominated the domestic scene with multiple victories, including a GC victory at races like Tour of the Gila. Rob and Trevor were teammates, in fact, back in the good old days. So this is a special episode for Trevor, seeing how far Rob has come since then and getting him on the show. In addition to Rob and Mike, we'll talk with Mike's coach, Paolo Saldana. Despite his remarkable coaching success, Paolo points out that coaching is only one of the many hats he wears. He's the owner of the successful indoor training company, Power Watts, and is an endurance sport physiologist by trade where he builds support structures for athletes worldwide and runs a high-performance facility in Montreal. Finally, we'll talk briefly with Dr. Kieran O'Grady, a coach and sports scientist at Team Dimension Data. As a World Tour coach, 
we'll ask him what's different about training for a seven-hour race. Now, I'd like you all to please stand for the National Anthem of Canada. Oh, Canada, my home and native land. <clears throat> all right, let's make you fast. The holidays are coming to an end, but for a limited time, you can still save $200 and get free shipping on the Normatec Pulse Recovery System. An extensive body of research shows that Normatec increases circulation and reduces muscle stiffness. The result is that you can train harder and race faster. Normatec is the official supplier of USA Cycling and is also the same technology that riders like Tom Skynch, Taylor Finney, and the BMC Racing Team all rely on. So welcome guys. We're joined here today by two members of the Canadian national team that just had a stellar performance at the World Championships in Innsbruck, Mike Woods and Rob Britton. We want to talk a lot about the performance they had on the day, the training leading up to it, and all things when it comes to worlds and preparing for it. And then of course, how that applies to our listeners out there. So welcome guys. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's a joy to have you. And the one thing I'm going to bring up here, I've been waiting two years for this. I am made fun of constantly for being Canadian down here. Uh, we have three of us ganging up on Chris. So I'm just going to say in this episode, uh, please, let's make fun of Americans a little bit. <laughs> but as, as everybody knows, Trevor, though, you are a Canadian only when you're in the U.S. and you're an American when you're up in Canada. So you have no comfortable place anymore. Yeah, yes, I like, to, I like to offend you're people anywhere I go. So, yeah, that's true. Uh, See, here's the, thing, here's the thing, though. Despite us being three Canadians and Chris being one, for sure we'd all just bow down to his needs as we're, like, as Canadians do. You know, like, it would just... Yeah, you'll just you know, apologize, like, <laughs> repeatedly yeah, exactly. apologize and yeah. apologize and be very... But I love what Mike Meyer said about this, which is there is nothing more Canadian than a Canadian living in the U.S. <laughs> oh, it's so true. Alex Howes makes fun of me quite a bit when, uh, like, he'll see me hang out with another Canadian in an environment outside of Canada. And we always bring up the fact that other people are Canadian, even if we know both people are Canadian. So we'll be like, sit, I'll be sitting there with Rob or someone that be like, did you know Justin Bieber's Canadian? And he'll be like, yeah, 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 of course. Like we bring like, we have to highlight that we're Canadian to other Canadians outside of Canada. Wow. Yeah. It's like a, a thing. I didn't that we, realize Justin Bieber was Canadian. Yeah. We only play him on the good days. You learn something new every time on Fast Talk. We've got all the hit makers. We've got Celine, the Beebs, Michael Bublé, Nickelback, Nickelback, Drake. Yeah. All right. The yeah, should we be admitting to any of these? No. See, this is this is why you're Canadians. Uh -huh. <laughs> let's uh, rush. Tragically hip. Let's let's yeah. let's go a little higher quality here. Yeah. I I, I wouldn't judge the Beebs on his artistic quality. Like uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't take him down. Don't. He's not that bad. All right. And with on, on that note, let's uh, let's return to cycling. <laughs> Do you want to start by both of you sort of walking us through the day? 
And if you're able to bring in some data, bring in some sense of just how big this day was for both of you. And I, I realize both of you are, had different roles to play on the day. And let's just quickly add in there that, that Rob was in the, the, the breakaway of the day. And Mike, you ended up finishing on the podium. You got the bronze medal at the, the World Championships, which is absolutely huge. So let's just, for any listener who wasn't aware of that, let's, let's start there uh, to give some context. And I remember talking about the numbers after the race with Rob. And Rob's were significantly higher than mine just because he's in the break. He was on the pedals all day. Whereas when you're in the Peloton, obviously you're not producing consistent power throughout the day it's just hammering and then backing off so I, I remember rob you said like you were over 300 watts i think for the whole day for average but i'm not, I'm not sure i don't remember yeah yeah so the numbers i had is i think like our race was kind of like inverse variation like when i was going backwards you were just hitting the afterburners so yeah for me i think it was like 7500 kjs for the day and pretty damn near 300 watts on the nose for seven hours yeah look at your stats right here seven hours seven minutes 280 watts yeah so you know normalized probably 320 310 uh so, 317 yeah, for normalized there we go yeah where's mine i was 646 for the duration of the race that's excluding the the, the ride to the the start and goofing around on the bike a bit I was 646 and 291 normalized and 231 average. So significantly less watts overall, but also I'm a bit lighter than Rob, than Rob well, as well. A little bit lighter. Yeah. So Mike, you're what, 62 kilograms? Rob, what are you? Uh, on that day, I was probably right around 70. Yeah, and I got down actually to under, I was like 61 flat for the race. But you are really pointing out that when you are – in the peloton it's uh, so mike you were really focused on energy conservation for the right moments where rob when you're in the breakaway it's just put your head down and go as hard as you can go is that that correct i was just up Not there you know, just riding and like um i always had in the back of my mind to kind of be be there deeper into the race for mike but yeah the way it worked out was you know after six thousand kj's worth of energy expenditure over six hours there's not a whole lot left you have in the tank to do much. But the, the interesting, like for Rob, for example, his goal wasn't to go all out when he was in the break. It's to conserve as much as possible throughout the day so that he can be there. Whereas, so he's actually trying to play this, the same game that I was trying to play, except you, you, you have to put up more power just to keep on going forward in the break. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there was any point in the, uh, in the break where I was actually going like flat out you know, other than the start to get in the break. But after that, it was, uh, it was a very kind of steady, conservative effort. Yeah, through the day, it was just a nice, long grind. Mike, you and I spoke recently about sort of the, the plan. And I'm, I'm curious if you could revisit that plan. It sounds like it was, a, for you specifically, it was one that came together over the course of a year with a lot of different input from personal coaches, Canadian team coaches, trade team coaches, and maybe explain that a little bit and then talk about how that played out on the road with Rob in the break and some of the other goals you had during the race and how you ticked off each one of those. 
Well, uh, over a year ago, uh, well, actually right around a year, a year ago today, pretty much, Rob, myself, uh, several other members of the National Cycling Program, uh, Kevin Field, we were uh, our performance director, we were all in Victoria and we were sitting around a table just brainstorming and we, we ended up talking about the World Championships and it seemed so distant at that time seemed over a year away like and for me it's really hard to to make goals and make plans a year away from a race just because racing there's so many intangibles you can crash so much so much stuff goes goes wrong that it's for it's always really difficult to say this is what i want to do at this race but i remember at the table we sat and we talked about the goal of meddling and we even talked about rob getting in the break and being a guy that could help out late in the race by getting in the break. And throughout the rest of the year, I had calls with Kevin. I had calls with my coach, Paul Saldana, and I had uh, my, I, I talked with my team director, Juan Manuel Garate, and he also communicated with both Paulo and Kevin to build a plan for how I could execute at this race. Also, we brought in Nigel Mitchell, uh, a nutrition, our nutritionist on the, on, on EF, Education First, Drake Pack, Powered by Canada. He put together a nutrition plan. So we put together this big, ma- massive plan starting almost a year out and throughout the year working on it. And as we got closer and closer to the goal, the goal, I started to believe in it, that goal more and more just because it wasn't that far off. And then finally, when we arrived at the race, everything that Kevin had orchestrated, that Paul and my coach uh, had orchestrated that Juanma had communicated with the guys in terms of a race strategy. It all came together, and it was it was beautiful, and it was really really nice for me to see, and it gave me a lot of confidence as the race progressed because I know we, how hard it is to get into a breakaway at that level. I had to that was my job at the Vuelta uh, a, a week or so earlier was to try and get in breakaways. It's not easy, and. Right away, Rob was in the first several moves, and then finally when the, was in the move that would go up the road. And to have talked about that a year previous and have it happen a year later was cool, was super cool. And then to have Hugo Hull and Antoine Duchesne, my two teammates uh, that were with me in the race, just kind of be in my bodyguards throughout the day and having talked about that again a year earlier and just having them execute on that plan was also really special and all those things contributed to the result that I ultimately had because when I got to the place where I had to execute I had no choice but to execute because everyone else in the process of planning executed on their part so I got to ask the question here because you know there there's an expression in pro cycling that the best laid plans fall apart on the start line so here you have a plan that you mapped out a year ahead of time um, and this is a hard plan to execute. How much of this was just some good fortune that allowed it to play out the way you, you wanted it to play out versus you did all the homework, all the preparation, had all the people on board to make sure that this plan happened? Well, uh, okay. I, I, I'll, I'll go ahead, Rob. I was just say, I mean, there's a saying uh, that just like, luck happens to the well-prepared, right? And I think what Mike just said is like, for a country that doesn't have a boatload of money, I think we did an exceptional job of being very well prepared for this specific world championships for this team of four guys and this course with Mike as the leader. Yeah, I think we did kind of in a very Canadian way, everything right. Yeah, Mike, my question um, for Rob was, 
the pressure was on for you to get into that break and, and people often don't understand how tricky it is, how complicated it is, and how difficult it is sometimes to get into that break. Maybe you could walk us through that process early on in the race. Yeah. Um, so how Mike's goal was to, you know, or the team's goal was to get Mike on the podium. My kind of single thought for that whole race before, like weeks and months before, even like, like I say, even a year before, was to get in that break. So that was just always in the back of my head. And then as the race got closer, as more before thought and uh i don't think i've ever been that nervous like the days are like like hours leading up to the race as i was to uh to get in that break and i kind of was pretty dead set on getting into it and either either i'd get into it or i'd be questionable for the hour after missing it because i would go as deep as i had to, to go to make it happen yeah thankfully the days before the race i kind of had uh some good sensations in the legs and you know, started to uh, sharpen up and snap back just in the nick of time. You know, a couple of races before too, with the World Tour race in uh, Quebec and Montreal being uh, the last races I'd done before this. I was in the break in Quebec there, which was good practice. And I'd done it a few other times this year. And I mean, I stuff like plenty, so you kind of know how to like, surf it. But uh, yeah, it was it was super stressful, but I was pretty pretty dead set on making it happen. So how did you pick the move? How did you know which was the right move? Was there some luck there or was it a feel or were there things that you were looking for? It was a bit, uh, I was more just paying attention at the start of the race. Actually, one of the guys who was up there was one of Antoine's teammates and he had talked to Antoine um, at the start about getting into the break, knowing that Antoine would be watching Mike, but I was standing right there. So he kind of looked like a guy who seemed like he knew what he was doing, you know, watching guys like this surf the front you can always kind of play off them so uh, i think he was a swedish guy and then um the danish fellow from quick step went and i pre-ridden the course the first 40k a couple of times so i knew that there was this one kicker in the first 10 or 15k or so uh that would be a really good launching point because there would be a few attacks before it and it's just trends uphill into the base of it so i made sure that i was near the front and um those two guys kind of kicked off and I remember just thinking, like, this was going to be it. And if I didn't make it this time, I'd be in a world of trouble because I had to go pretty deep uh, over the top there just to, yeah, to tag that move. But once we're there, we we're kind of gone, and we sat at 30 or 40 seconds for the longest time, and then finally it started to go out. So it all came down to strategic eavesdropping. Yeah, exactly. But the worst part about those moments, too, is, like, Cause I've been there where I have to do the same thing and a, you're so nervous. And like, also, especially like the style of rider that Rob is like, and I'm similar. I'm, I'm not great at the start. Typically I'm, I'm all, I'm better at the finish of a race. You know how much is going to hurt at the start in order to get in that breakaway. And then also this fear that, that hangs over your head of if you don't make it, like not only have you not made the break, but you've wasted all this energy trying to get in the break. And so for the rest of the race, you're going to feel awful and you're not going to be good at th- your job of being a helper for the remainder of the race. And it is a terrible fear that just, I, I you get super nervous. So as that's why I was even I, like, I know how Rob was feeling pre-race and it's such a release when you get in that break. Yeah. After that, it was, uh, it was pretty easy. Like it's just like the way the world is off my shoulders and I could just kind of ride. And especially on a course like that, they gave us so much time so fast. It kind of made for a pretty chill few hours out there before things started to pick up. 
for, for those people out there that are wondering, why is it so important for Rob Britton to get into the breakaway if Mike Woods is the leader of the team? Could you help us, our listeners out there, understand what that means for the team as a whole and why it is so important for you to get into the break that day? Yeah, it's it serves like two parts, and I think we executed really well on one of them. You know, the first part, it kind of takes any responsibility off our, our shoulders to ride. And also, the further up the road we get, the more energy these bigger teams are going to have to put in to chasing teams like Spain and France and, um, you know, Belgium, these teams that have seven, eight riders. So they're going to have to kind of throw their guys in the front and start bringing their matches and allow, you know, Mike, Tony, and Hugo to chill out a bit. And then um, the second half, which I kind of missed uh, a bit there, was for me to be that guy for Mike deeper into the race once maybe Hugo and Antoine have come out of the field. Yeah, that was definitely the initial plan was to, uh, to still be there to kind of help Mike get into position uh, going up the climb on the last lap. But also even to having Rob up the road late meant that if there were any attacks from key guys that if I followed, I could just sit in too. So if like, let's say a real hitter, let's say Valverde, for example, attacked and I got on his wheel, I can just sit in, I can just follow and not have to pull through until we catch up to Rob. Yeah, I think... That isn't obvious to everybody that uh, is watching racing and, and isn't maybe familiar with the dynamics of racing and, and the, the way a team works. But also, it's a little more complicated at a race like Worlds when you've got teams of different sizes and you're working with teammates that aren't your trade team. So there's a little bit of added uh, pressure maybe or dynamic or just even sometimes c- confusion as to who's working for who and and how it's all going to play out. Yeah, and, and numbers were, are, were a big factor for us too. Like we aren't Spain or France where you can have a bunch of guys devoted to helping somebody late in a race. We only had four, we're only four guys. So we had to be a bit more creative and we de- like having Rob up, in the, up the road certainly uh, meant that it took the burden off a lot of, it meant that we didn't have to have nearly as many riders right. in the race. So to kind of give a, an image here, later in the race, let's say Spain is on the front chasing. If Rob wasn't up the road, they could be yelling at the at Mike and any other Canadians that are, who are there to say, you need to be helping us. Stop sitting on our wheel. Where with Rob up the road, Mike can say, I've got a teammate up there. I'm not going to chase down my teammates. So sorry, I'm going to sit on your wheel and I'm not going to help you. Yeah, exactly. Fortunately, we also aren't recognized as a nation that needs to take responsibility. Like no one's lo- looks at the Canes and be like, Oh man, why aren't you guys riding? <laughs> However, that's starting to change too, which is, it's great. But all the, all the same time, it's going to put more of a burden right. on, on, on the guys we have. Right. Now, Mike, just a question for you. When Rob was up the road in the breakaway, was that, motivating for you knowing you had a teammate up there who was working for you or did it produce a little stress saying hey he's killing himself for me so i better deliver a bit of both so i love doing races that have positive momentum and what i mean by that is uh a good example is like if you if you're in a race and your teammates are riding well 
it forces you to step up. And so yeah, it puts a bit of, like, I find it puts a bit of pressure on, on my, like when a teammate is up the road putting, doing a good job, it puts a bit of pressure on me, but it's positive pressure. It's coming from a good place because they're, they're being aggressive. They're creating this positive momentum. And then I get excited about having to feed off, like, having to expand on that positive energy. So a uh, good example was this race, but also on my trade team uh, when we were doing the Italian classics, the first Italian classic we did was Amelia and we rode really positively. Like we had Hugh Carthy first attack and then we had Danny Martinez going up the road and all that meant that uh, like I, I fed off that, I got excited and when finally we would catch them, I was keen to attack and do an action that would continue that positive momentum. Whereas we did a race a few days later in Trey Valley Vinerzina and we were down a few guys. Uh, we weren't uh, going as well and we we actually missed the move and then you're sitting there and you're it's negative like there's it, you're all of a sudden having to play defense and so we had to put a guy on the front to ride and like I don't like when you have to sacrifice a guy to ride in the front in order to account for mistakes made so it's like you're, you're just continuing this negative spiral downward and yeah like I, I don't operate as well under that so when I saw Rob up the road sure it's a bit of pressure but it's positive pressure it's like man he stepped up now I get to step up I get to continue that uh, I think um, having having watched it, having spoken with Mike a bit, I understand the sort of emotional roller coaster that you went through, and I I know listeners will love to hear about everything is going well during the race, the 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 checklist of things you want to go right, you're ticking them off one by one. Rob gets in the break, you're keying off of particular riders and particular teams. So why why don't you explain? the last and decisive moments of the race and how everything was coming together and then the ups and downs emotionally and physically of that effort. Well, yeah, like we, like I said earlier, it was amazing to see this plan unfold and it unfolded all the way until 300 meters to even 200 meters to go for me. Uh, I did the recon with Rob and Antoine a few days before the race and I visualized myself hitting the base of the hell climb and attacking at a certain point. And I actually did an effort at that, at the point where I, I wanted to go from. Just to jump in, there was so much talk about this hell climb with, with, with different names and scary, scary descriptions. How, how bad was it? Was it nasty? Uh, well, Rob will probably laugh at this. It wasn't too long. <laughs> like it was, <laughs> there you go. We had a joke. We had a joke about this. We had a joke about this. Um, uh, well, after we, we recalled it. It's hard, but it's not long. Sure. It's very steep. Yeah. So it was 2.15 kilometers at 12.8%. So for Mike, uh, you've completed it in 8 minutes, 17 seconds. Rob, considering you were in the breakaway all day, I'm guessing it took you a little bit longer. Yeah. Uh, Mike's uh, not that long. was probably the single, like, deepest thing I've ever had to do on a bike in my life to not walk. <laughs> well, it averaged 12%. It, uh, it maxed out at 28%. I don't think I've ever ridden up a 28% yeah. grade in my life. I think one of the only things that really got me over that climb in like, yeah, without walking, say it was, uh, about 70% of the way up when I was just starting to, um, black out. Somebody kind of leaned in and said that Mike had gotten third and it was like, kind of energized me for a few more pedal strokes. It was incredible, yeah, to hear that. But that's the difference between a normal bike racer and like the guy who's in it for the win. Like Mike actually did this like huge dynamic 
acceleration there. And there's two other guys in the entire world that were able to, to match it. And just to give some stats to show how impressive this was. So, Mike, your time up the climb was 8 minutes, 17 seconds. You averaged 419 watts, which works out to 6.65 watts per kilogram. Yeah, the numbers, I don't think were super crazy. But it was just the fact that it was so late in the race that right. made it more difficult. And also, it wasn't the ideal climb. It was not the, like the perfect power file climb. Like, I, I can do much bigger numbers than that for eight minutes. So can a lot of guys in the world tour. But it's just the fact that it was that late in the race after that many accelerations. Because we did, we never rode easy up the previous climb. And also, it just being so steep that you couldn't really sit. But yeah, I mean, it was, there's still pretty good numbers. It's just not, not the biggest numbers you, you, you'd imagine. I, I know for a fact, if you say those numbers, there's probably a guy who rides Cat 1 that that's out there that's just has a huge engine that's like oh you know that's not that impressive i did that on my group ride the other day right but the group ride wasn't seven hours long and had you know 50 efforts before that well i gotta tell you as a mere mortal i look at those numbers and go boy that'd be nice <laughs> yeah. regardless of the fact that it was six and a half hours into a race yeah no really the the climb was tough like i remember hearing and seeing video of andre zeitz i, I believe he, he was like 20th or some of that at, at, in the race and he walked up the climb. Wow. Chris and I had a long talk with Mike's coach, Paolo Saldana, the day after our interview with Mike and Rob. Paolo shared his thoughts as the coach on Mike's strategy and how he tackled the final climb. So yesterday, we actually had a great conversation with Mike Woods and with Rob Britton, but specifically with Mike about his efforts. Let's maybe break down Mike's world's ride if you have some insight there and some data to give us a sense of how big that day was. Sure. Mike's 6.45 effort, about six, six hours and 45 minutes, I think it was about 260K. <clears throat> we kind of broke it down into, um, into three sections, the, the, the race, that really what we wanted to make sure was that he got to that last effort, which was one, one climb with the final steep climb, as fresh as possible. And the way we did that was to kind of try and get him to stay in his comfort envelope as, for as many of those laps as possible. And in fact, the first uh, 60 to 80 kilometers of the race were really kind of, with the exception of one little climb that they had in there, were really more of kind of a warm up, make sure he stays hydrated, make sure he follows his sort of 80 to 100 you know, grams of carbohydrate uh, an hour leading up into the looped course. And what the strategy was really for him to expend as little energy as possible because we knew, or at least when we talked about it, we thought it would come down to that last steep climb. And the interesting thing about that last steep climb is that I knew that if he could get there, even having expended a teeny bit too much energy, because that happens sometimes in bike racing, uh, if you got to fill a gap or you know surge ahead to a, maybe a, a key competitor who might be a, a threat, if, if he could get to that last climb where the grades were upwards of around 26, 27% on certain sections of it, even though it wasn't that long, the fact that everybody would be sort of uh, half fried at that point, glycogen depletion sets in, you know, and so everybody's a coward under fatigue a little bit. So we'd hoped that the advantage that Mike has, which is standing climbing, could really show itself on a, on a course like that where the finish 
had about a two and a half to, it was about 2.7 kilometer climb with an average grade uh, anywhere between uh, 14 and 20%, depending on where you were. And it actually topped out at 26 or when you did it in training, it was actually 28% that we measured it. And the thing that people have to understand about Mike is that he's got a, a fairly large engine size and he, he comes from a running background. I think most people know that. But when you come from a running background, it's really tough to make a transition from generating power in an upright position to generating power in a trunk flexed sort of aerodynamic tuck. It's one of the reasons why he doesn't do super well in, 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 in TTs, because as soon as he has this trunk down position, he tends to suffer a little bit more. So the process was, if he can get to the point where he has his best advantage, which is when everybody needs to stand on the last climb, then we knew that he could do something special. So the whole race was, you know, I, I basically I gave him uh, uh, just a few words before as a pep talk before the race, and that's David and Goliath. You know, he is a Goliath, but he needed to act like a David, and he played it perfectly in the actual race. So that's kind of the the strategy and and how it all played out a little bit. That's fantastic, and you kind of touched on something we brought up with Mike, which was. In some ways, it seemed like the race was six hours of kind of wearing everybody down and then one hour of seeing who's got something left in the legs, which is what you were talking about. It was all about trying to get to that end when the, the big throwdowns were going to happen with pretty cl- as close as you could be to full strength. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and you could see when I, when I did the analysis of the actual race itself, the first lap around that loop was done in about 20, 20, minute, 20 minutes and 15 seconds. Uh, the first climb, I should say, that loop was done in about 20 minutes and 15 seconds. And every loop after that was faster. So it went from like 2015 to 1940 to 1830 to 1820 to 1810 to 1750. And then the last one before they hit the monster was 1740. So it actually, because of the breakaway, they started to slowly pick it up. And, and that's a good thing for Mike because he just sat in, you know, conserved his energy, make sure he fueled up. And even on his last lap before the monster, I call it the monster, the last 2.6K climb, he was relatively conservative. He, he climbed that at about a, a normalized power is about 350 watts or so at, at a sort of a variability index of just a little over one. So that means that he wasn't burning a lot of matches on his way up there. It was about a 1,400, 1,450 uh, VAM which he's more than capable of doing. And so after I looked at that, I, I, after the race, I said, okay, well, this is why he was able to climb the last piece of it at about 420 watts or so, you know, at about an 1850 to 1900 van. And, and that's, what, that's what the difference maker is. You know, it's, it's what you have left when it's time to, to put the jets on in these, in these top level races where all the best are there and the field is super deep. It, it takes that much whittling away to let the cream rise to the top a little bit. As coaches, Paolo and I are both sometimes stuck just looking at the numbers. So let's get back to the interview where Mike explains why the experience often isn't as simple as what the numbers say. It seems like there is a huge sustainability or or training your ability to essentially not fatigue involved in this race. So what I mean by that is I, I look at the first part of your race, the climbs that you were hitting, and certainly they were hard, but you know, for example, the second climb, you were doing 4.9 watts per kilogram. I look at things like that and go, you know, that would hurt a lot, but I could actually do that. 
But then you get towards the end of the race, and this is you know, six hours into the race. You're going up climbs at wattages and, and watts per kilogram that I just go, not even close. I, I would be out the back. So it seems like, please correct me if I'm wrong in this, but there's almost this, the first part of the race, it's not let's do a big killer effort to see who we can pop. It's much more a let's kind of grind everybody down, see how much we can fatigue everybody. And then as you get towards the end of the race, now let's see who's got something left in the tank. Is that correct? And if that's the case, how do you train for that? Well, I think for like, first of all, if you look at just watts per kilo as it's, I don't think that's actually a good metric for how we do the climbs are structured just because yeah, maybe I averaged 4.9 or 4.9 watts per kilo for that first climb, and then each one was progressively harder. But that 20-minute window isn't representative of how hard the climb actually is. Because if you look at the file and you zoom in to each climb, it's not, okay, I'm just going to sit on 320 watts. It's... right. 600 like you're like literally there are points where you're doing 450 500 watts and then you're zeros you're fighting for position you're not riding the most efficient line in the climb because you're trying to get around guys you're producing power not even through the pedals because you're manipulating your bike as well you're pushing guys around that's you're using energy that you wouldn't use just on a straight climb uh alone doing five watts per kilo it's like you're expending way more energy and so like i find when i look at i look at a race file and i look at a number like a 20 minute power file like if i hit that the number that whatever i hit you can almost you can up it by almost another watt per kilo in order to represent how difficult it really is because every time i'm on the pedals on that those each each of those climbs it's way more it's also way higher watts than than the 320 that I averaged, and it's taxing. And so that that repeated spiking uh, of wattage fatigues you big time. And you see guys, particularly who you've I've heard do way bigger numbers than I can in training, come completely apart because you watch them go up a climb, spiking their watts way more than they need to, trying to get around guys way faster, not riding the most efficient way holding the bars too tight, all these things that contribute to them wasting energy. And then they look at the file after too, and they're like, man, I only did 320 watts in training I did. I could do that, you know, till the cows come home. But they can't execute in the race because of all those things. So I think for sure, like those are numbers that are, are doable, but more doable in training. When you do, when you try to do something like that in a race at this level, uh, it's so fatiguing. So that kind of, one of our first episodes of Fast Talk, we talked a little bit about what separates pros from amateurs. And the research on this is fascinating because they, they point out that your, your VO2 max, a lot of your, your peak numbers, they don't really improve. They'll, they'll look at, there, there's some studies that have looked at pros over five, six years, and really whatever their, their peak is, it stays their peak. But what you see improvements are in is a couple things. One is uh, better efficiency. So they can produce that power with, with less of a, essentially a strain on the body. Uh, likewise, you see a decrease in what's called the, the slow component of VO2, which is 
uh, one of the indicators of fatigue. The, the muscles are kind of wearing down. So essentially what you see in pros is that top end doesn't get much bigger, but their ability to keep hitting that top end or to ride very close to that top end without fatiguing improves uh, over time to, to where they can just keep riding at those high intensities. Is that kind of what you're getting at here? Or do you feel it's different? Yes, for sure. But also, also from a mental perspective too. Like, like what, what you're saying is totally accurate. But also over five years, let's say with that, the, that athlete as an example, that athlete's going to get more efficient, but also more mentally efficient and also able to navigate the peloton better and know little tricks in order to keep that, them, themselves fresh in order to keep themselves eating properly, hydrating properly. It's like, yeah, obviously for sure, from a physiological perspective, they're more efficient, but more so I think it's the positioning, the mental side, uh, the ability to just stay relaxed, be composed, be cool, and, and execute under duress. Well, well, let's jump back to those, those closing moments of the race and walk us through that, Mike. So yeah, everything just came to plan. I, I, we reconned it. I visualized the descent, did it fast with Antoine Duchesne trying to drop me. And then uh, even when I was, when we rode up to the finish line, I told myself, I'm not going to go until 150 meters to go. And so I made all these plans in my head. But again, like I said earlier, there's so many intangibles in a race, so it's very hard to make a, make a plan and expect it to work. But when I hit the base of the climb, that final climb, my goal was to, to be using France as a reference point. And in front of me were only four guys, Alphilippe, Bardet, Thibaut Pinot, and Moscon. And the only guy behind me was Valverde. So it, it was like, I, I, I was shocked that I was in that position. Thibaut Pinot made an effort and basically there were only five guys left after he made that effort and it didn't feel that difficult when he made it. And so I was, I was so surprised at how good I felt. And then when we hit the section where I did an interval in the recon, I just told myself, I'm going to do that same effort. It's roughly four minutes long. If I do that effort now, I get to dictate the pace. I get to control how I feel as opposed to someone else controlling how I feel. And so I went and I, draw, I was able to drop Moscon. I was able to drop Alphilippe and Pino, and there were only three guys left over the top of the climb. And then my next biggest worry was that descent, but because we did a great recon, we had a, I did a good descent with Antoine. I actually felt like I took better lines than, than Valverde and, and Bardet in that, de, in that descent, which is rare for me. And I felt like, I don't know, I just felt like, I think I told you this already, Chris, but I felt like Neo in the Matrix. Like I was just, everything that I was plant doing just unfolded and I had this like nice bird's eye view of how the race was going. And even in the final 300 meters, 300 meters I couldn't believe how everything was going because I thought I was going to win because that's when Valverde started to sprint. And he started in my mind way too early. He was just leading me out. He's gifting me the sprint. And with 150 meters, 200 meters to go, I pulled out to come around him and I just cramped up like massive electrolyte cramp and went from thinking I was going to win the race to just trying to survive and, and hold off, uh, Bardet and, uh, Dumoulin, uh, for the medals. And when I crossed the line, it went from, like this huge emotional high to think I was going to win to this huge disappointment that I didn't win. And it took me about four or five minutes to get over the disappointment and realize it was a big accomplishment and it was actually something I should be proud of. That's 
amazing story. I, I've been there, not at not at Worlds, of course, but uh, that a roller coaster of emotions where you're 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 everything's lining up and you've got this vision of yourself posting up, winning a race, and then all of a sudden you go from that that immense high to this oh my God, I just blew it, or oh my God, I just cramped, and you come in third, and it does take you a while to process all that because you were so close to the ultimate prize, and yet you got something less than that, but still an amazing accomplishment, which you don't want that bad taste in your mouth to to remain, really, because you gotta be you got to be really happy with a bronze medal at the World Championships. And also just the fact that you were talking about holding off guys like Dumoulin. These are grand tour winners that you were holding off to get that bronze. Yeah, no, I, I, like in retrospect, it, it was, I was very, very proud of the performance, especially considering where I came from in the sport. Like, I mean, Rob has seen me when I did my first NRC race in, Cas- in Cascade, and I was like a completely different rider then. And how, how, I, where, like, how far I've come. I can't not be I can't be disappointed with that performance at all. But I was in that moment when I finished. The holidays are coming to an end, and I know for one I'm gonna miss the luxury of an hour every night relaxing in my Normatex. But that shouldn't stop you. For a limited time, you can still save two hundred dollars and get free shipping on the Normatech Pulse Recovery System. Extensive body research shows that Normatech increases circulation and reduces muscle stiffness. The result is that you can train harder and race faster. That's probably a great a great way to transition into the training that it takes and the different approaches that both of you had to take to get ready for this race. I know that there's in in some ways at polar ends of the spectrum, I realize that Mike raced the Vuelta as prep that in itself is a, a massive block of racing. Rob, on the other hand, I think that you did a interesting bikepacking trip in, in some senses to prepare for world. So it'd be great to dig into these different approaches. Of course, the common theme there is a lot of miles for both of you guys, knowing that this race was going to be uh, so physically taxing, such a long effort. So maybe we could start with, with Rob and you could talk us through your preparation. <laughs> yeah, uh that's a bit different than most people would uh get ready for a one day race with forty five hundred meters of climbing. Yeah, my preparation was exactly what you just said. It was a nine day bikepacking trip on my cross bike from Calgary to Port Renfrew on Vancouver Island. We weren't staying in hotels. We did not have a nutrition plan. It was as far from my normal style of training as it could possibly get. But at the same time, it was also exactly, I think for me, what I needed and uh, wanted to do at the end of the season to get ready for something like this. And I also know my body and what works well for it and what works does and what doesn't work well for it. And um, I remember talking with uh, Kevin Field, our, uh, yeah, our director at Cycling Canada for this. And I know Kevin likes numbers and, I like numbers, uh, so I kind of, before this bikepacking thing and before I was officially in for Worlds, I, he said he wanted me to go, and I kind of came up with a bit of, like, a set of metrics for the uh, bikepacking, and it was nine days. I figured between sixteen and 1,800K, uh, 
25 or 30,000 meters of climbing, just tons of t- like, you know, training stress, uh, kilojoule burns, hours, daily miles, everything was just off the charts. Also with no recovery days in there. So this would be the most consistent training I would have ever done without any mental stress of, you know, having it hit these marks every day, which I love about training, but at the same time, I was, at this time of the year, I was kind of over it. You know, I wasn't doing the Volta. I wasn't about to go to altitude again and train, which would be how I would normally get ready for something like this and, you know, motor pace and all this. You know, I'd just been away for six weeks before doing the World Tour races. I was in Colorado and Utah for those races and altitude counts before. So, yeah, it was uh, definitely a little unconventional. And even up until the first hour of the race, I couldn't have told you what the answer was going to be if I thought the bikepacking was the right answer or the wrong answer for uh, preparation. We just had to kind of wait and see. Yeah, it must have been a bit ner- nerve-wracking. Now, when you were doing these rides, were you targeting um, a particular heart rate or power zone, or was it really just go and ride each day? Uh, yeah, there was no. I had um, I had two Garmin's, one to uh, route us and one to uh, record stuff from my crank, like power cadence, that kind of stuff. But no, there was no. There was no preset anything. And I went out the window like on the first day. Any any ideas that I had for speed and everything. You just like the bike weighed 75 pounds or 65 pounds. Going through these mountain passes one day, we had like just insane hike a bike sections. Just this stuff doesn't exist in normal, normal day-to-day like professional road training. So no, it was I think the only real efforts I did, I mean, much to the dismay of the guys I was with were uh on the last two days, I did some pretty decent kind of like sub-threshold kind of climbing efforts just to make sure I still knew what I was doing on a bike. But after day two or day three, like your heart your heart rate stops responding to pretty much anything. Um, it just sort of stays low all the time. Like Mike would probably be able to shed more light on that. I've never done a grand tour, but after a week of these kind of two, three, 350 TSS days, your heart rate's just basically low all the time. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's shocking how low it gets relative to how much power you can put out mm-hmm. compared to when you're fresh. Right. But I even said to you, I, I even said to you, Rob, before you started, I was like, dude, you're probably, this is probably going to hurt so bad to get in the, in the break. But if you get in there, you're going to feel great. Yeah, like totally. Five, it was, uh, it was exactly that. It's, and you mentioned it even before on the podcast here. It's like, yeah, the first hour of the race is probably my least favorite part of it and it's not like the kind of racer i am and it certainly wasn't the training i'd done so uh that added to uh the pressure and the nerves back yeah for that because there was no there was no sprints or vo2s or you know one minute on offs for this uh this tour i think the only sprints happened like you know for town lines when we're getting bored so this was really mostly just all aerobic base work that you were doing on this this trip yeah exactly What's it like to sprint for a town line with a 65-pound bikepacking bike? Awkward. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not safe, that's for sure. Yeah. So, so Mike, knowing that Rob was using this type of trip to prepare for a very important role at Worlds, did it give you any uh, trepidation or were you pretty confident that this was going to work for him? No, I know how much volume can benefit a person, a rider in a race of that duration. So I, I wasn't too worried. The worst thing you can hear is when a, a guy getting ready, for, like when you hear teammates coming to a race, for me at least, is that they haven't been riding their bike for weeks. Yeah. 
or they've, you know, like, oh, you know, I just got back from this vacation. Like then, you know, they're tapped out. Whereas like a, a bike trip like that, yeah, it's not the most spe- specific thing you can do for a, bike, for a race, but you're building such a huge base. And also your chances are you're going to come into racing mentally fresh. You're not, you're doing this, like you're, you're doing something that's interesting, exciting. It's a bit different than, than racing your bike. So you're not probably not gonna be as blown out as, as doing like a big grand tour, but you've done a big block of volume. So chances are you're not gonna be fat. You're not going to be, you're not, and you're not going to be out of shape. So I, 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 w- I wasn't too concerned at all. Like I, when I heard, I was like, Oh, that's, that's sick. Turning to, to Mike, I know that your uh, training overall leading into Worlds was significantly different because it was based around a lot of racing. Uh, we, when we spoke recently, you mentioned how even, even in, in retrospect, there were some, some other things that didn't go according to plan at the Tour of Utah, but that actually, in the end, maybe benefited your preparation. So if you, you, you injure yourself at the Tour of Utah, you come out of the Tour of Utah a little under where you had prepared or, or had expected to be leading into a big objective, which was the Vuelta. And so your role there changed a bit. So maybe you could discuss a little bit about how you used the Vuelta to prepare for Worlds and also that awkward time between coming off of a, a Grand Tour and leading into a key objective and how you balance recovery with being sharp still for a race like worlds yeah so using the vuelta to prepare for worlds and approaching the vuelta the way i did because of the crash and uh getting injured i i crashed in utah and ended up my leg got got infected on the flight back from uh, us to to europe so it meant that i couldn't target the Vuelta with GC ambitions, which I had originally hoped to, and was pretty frustrated when I first came into the Vuelta because of that. However, my director, Juan Manuel Garate, was was amazing, and he managed me very well, and he told me that it was actually great the way I was coming into the Vuelta, that I was coming in, and he said, if you come in at 60 to 70%, I'm actually happy. The reason why he was happy was that he knew based off my physiology and the based based off of how I've responded in previous grand tours, if he managed me well in the first week and a half, I'd actually be at my best in that last week. And that's what we did. I, I just worked for Rego in that first week. I kept my head low, tried to get in one or two breaks, but never really had to carry the weight of riding a GC. So you're not carrying this emotional stress every single day. You actually have a lot. I find doing racing a grand tour like this, it's just fun. It's kind of like you get to hit the reset button every day because you're not chasing a GC. You're also getting the best training camp that you could possibly imagine just because you're doing big miles, closed roads. You've got a massage after every single ride. You've got the best food for, for training. Like we have a team chef that just does an exceptional job of creating great food. You have a, a nutritionist that's there, Nigel Mitchell, making sure you're not gaining too much weight. And you have a Cairo there giving you adjustments and you just have this whole st- staff around you trying to optimize your, your performance. So it's a great environment to be if you want to get into shape. And over those first two weeks, I just consistently felt better each day. Uh, felt like I was getting the feel and rhythm of racing back, getting my confidence back. And by the time the third week rolled around, because it was building on this positive momentum, I felt great and I felt really good. And it's a gr- that's a great place to be because a lot of guys in the third week 
are not at that place. They are falling apart. They're deteriorating mentally. And you have a great time because you're taking advantage of how fatigued everyone else is. And I built this positive momentum. And after, after finishing the Vuelta, after I got a stage win in, on stage 17, that, that continued these positive vibes. I continued my motivation. And instead of what I've done in the past where I finished a Grand Tour and just been completely cooked physically and mentally, I felt fresh mentally. And so I didn't get depressed after this grand after this grand tour i didn't lie around the couch and eat bags of chips and drink beers and just wish i was no longer having to race my bike instead i was thinking oh man like world championships are coming up i can get a good result here and i'm fit so i was able to not worry that i wasn't riding for the first few days in order to recover it it created this really nice place mentally where uh I, I was able to chill in the, the two weeks between uh, the Vuelta and World Championships and just get excited for the race. So a really interesting trend that I'm hearing here is the importance of this mental side. So Rob, you talked about that heart rate depression. That's actually, it's uh, called sympathetic fatigue. That's actually a sign of overreaching. So both of you did these things leading up that actually just from a pure physiological standpoint, fatigued you, had you a little stretched out. But it sounds like mentally, the uh, both of your, your preps really put you in a good place for Worlds. And it almost seems like that was more important than how physically fresh you were. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, bike racing is, anybody who's done it long enough will tell you, it's an incredibly mentally demanding sport. Like, I don't have any experience in a Grand Tour, but I mean, I know how I come out of um, just like the week-long tours I've done. And, you know, to do three of those in a row, especially if you're going for like a GC role, like what I'd say Mike's traditional position would be on that kind of a team. That is a huge strain. That's every day you have to show up and be on point and you can't have a bad moment. And that all adds up and that's really, really, really hard. And to have that mental freedom, at least for me, takes away all the pressure. And it's like, you could be doing every bit as hard of like, you know, work, but yeah, to not be, just mentally fried and kind of shell-shocked after after a block of uh, stress like that is, is makes a huge, huge difference. And it just shows how much there is to the mental side of it. I actually have a question here from one of our listeners. This is from Robert Poulter, who lives in Toronto. So we're going to keep our Canadian theme going here. And he asked, how much of your training time is spent on threshold level work versus VO2 work? The reason I asked the question is it would seem to me that simply making it to the final selection at the Worlds was all about threshold, but actually winning the race was all about anaerobic efforts. How do great athletes think about the time spent training between these two and preparing to do both? And I'll actually add to this question. It seems like both of you put a, a high priority on even lower intensity training, that, that big uh, aerobic base training. Yeah. Uh, from um, from my side of things, Paulo, my coach, and I, we don't do much work uh, in thre- in the threshold zone. We're, we don't hit it up too much. Uh, I do a lot of uh, longer, easy rides and then do a lot more specificity where VO2 max work st- stuff. So a lot more punchy, shorter efforts. And I find just doing those two things really uh, do – enabled me to have that punch at the end of a long race. I think the threshold work, if anything, just kind of 
often leaves you stale. And I mean, it doesn't help my it doesn't help my time trialing. I don't think I'm a, I'm not a great time trialist because of that, <laughs> particularly because of that. But as a, a pro rider, I think more important is just getting the big volume in and then occasionally uh, doing the harder efforts. So you're really describing a very polarized approach, which is that 70 to 80% of your time at low intensity and then about 15 to 20% of your time above threshold. Exactly. Yeah, I. it's funny. I'm probably a bit different. For me, I get huge gains in doing a lot of volume and then uh, certain periods of the year, I'll incorporate a big block of threshold, um, usually before like a California or a Utah for me, just sharpening up that little bit doesn't take too, too much. So we'll do maybe a four week block of threshold, you know, big 20, 30 minute long efforts. And we'll do up to two and a half hours of that in a ride, you know, broken up. And then, uh, yeah, the weeks, maybe a couple weeks before a target race, we'll, we'll do those shorter efforts, you know, the 30 second to uh, four minute kind of efforts. And I find once I have like that huge block of volume in both just standard kind of zone two work and also threshold, the uh, the sharpening of the spear per se uh, comes really fast. So this is not, you're not doing high intensity all year round. This is, is really, as you're getting close to an event, you're, you're doing this to, to sharpen yourself. Yeah, definitely. And for us too, the racing brings a lot of that out as well. So I'll change the training to prepare for certain races. And then also you get some of those efforts in these races. So you don't need to do that kind of stuff in training so much. I think what's interesting too about this is there's multiple ways to uh, skin a cat and good athletes understand themselves a bit. They understand how their body responds. And while one method might work for one person, it might also work for another person, but maybe a better approach is something with a, a a bit more um, nuance to it or just just sort of different. So it's it's interesting that you both know and you, you said, I know that my body responds to and then fill in the blank. So that it's interesting to know the individuality of what works for, for different athletes. Yeah, certainly. I, but I also think too, like it, both Rob and I are training for diff, different style of racing often too. Like you, you look at what Rob's best at, it's races that are often high altitude, long climbs, where the threshold is going to be more important. Whereas I'm, I'm a guy who focuses on races that are like the Ardennes classics that are, you know, far more punchier and explosive and shorter efforts. So it's like, we're also training often for separate, yes. not disciplines, but separate, slightly different events. During our previous podcast with Dr. Sierra O'Grady, who is the coach and sports scientist at Team Dimension Data, we asked him what training is like for a world tour rider preparing for six-hour races. And more importantly, does that style of training work for those of us doing two-hour races? As a physiologist who's now working with a world tour team, in terms of the physiology, what's different about world tour riders? And do you train them and test them differently? So yeah, the, the the physiology would be a lot different to the amateur athlete. You know, these this this is their job. They they spend, you know, countless hours on the bike every year. They they race. A lot of riders who perform well in worlds would have would have done the welter. So they'll have three weeks of, of racing in their legs before they go up to up to compete in worlds. So there, there's the different scheduling of preparation. You know, the amateur athlete will find it very difficult to to find a, a racing schedule that would work 
with that type of precision, knowing that this race, if I ride hard in this race and then do a bit of a taper, I'll perform well in this one day race. So, but the, you know, the physiology, the, just the pure efficiency of these guys that it's unreal. They can just push the power out and, and at the end of a six hour race, still be able to push out near enough the same power. Um, it's something that we look at quite a lot is, is the fatigue. So do an effort at the start of a ride and then do, do your training session and then do, do another, you know, the same effort repeated on the, you know, ideally the same climb or, or stretch of road at the end of the ride. And then you can get your fatigue and then just track that throughout the year. But with, with the way that the racing is going, a lot of it is, is learning the, the demands of the race and how that is changing year on year and being smart. And, and looking for opportunities where you know your guys can perform better than the the demands of the race so you know just looking at power files from from previous races going back years different years and and then training to a little bit above those power demands and, and being ready for when the time comes now do you think this that sort of form you talk about that amazing efficiency that they can ride six hours and at the end of that six hours still be able to go hard for an amateur rider who's doing a, a two, two and a half hour race, is there still a benefit to building those assets or would that potentially take away from other strengths that they, they need in those shorter races? Um, a little bit it would, would take away uh, with, with the shorter races. Yes, efficiency is, is still important. Over two hours, your efficiency is going to decline. So there, there will be that necess necessity to, to train, to still be good performing especially if the intensity is is high you're going to still be struggling at the end of those two hours but for the amateur athletes that there, there is a little bit more of a focus i would recommend on the on, on on just the raw power you know having being able to do it in in the first hour and if you can be there at the end of the first hour you know that you're 50 percent of the way through you're, you're going to try and hold on for the for the rest of it whereas if you focus on those being able to perform over a six hour ride and, you know, at a little bit lower in intensity and then go into a two hour really hard, you know, high intensity crit race or road race, then you'll, you'll probably be on the back foot from the get go and, and really be struggling. All right, let's get back to Rob and Mike. So let's hit you with our, our kind of the last question that we wanted to finish up with here is a lot of our listeners don't do seven hour races. Obviously their racers are more that three to four hour length. How is preparing for a race like this different from a North American race that's that's just three or four hours in length? And after preparing for an event like this, do you think you can go back and be at your best for one of those shorter races, or is the training fundamentally different? Yeah, I think the training is, I don't know if it's fundamentally different. It is for sure for getting ready for this, but being good for a seven-hour bike race doesn't mean you're not going to be good for a three-hour bike race. Perfect example is I do three-hour bike races in the middle of the Tour de France now, or you know the Tour of uh, Italy, and these guys are probably going a lot faster than anybody in North America could dream to go. And yeah, the biggest thing is a lot of guys in North America they're just able to execute big numbers and a good ride for three hours or roughly 120k, and it's almost like a light switch. After that, that's that's it. So I think getting ready for a seven-hour race prepares you for to be good and still be a solid bike racer for three hours, but being good at three hours is night and day to being good for seven hours. Yeah. I also think too, it gives you, when you do the longer races, even if you're an amateur, if you do some hard, long, like over distance training sessions, 
it just gives you such a good perspective on the shorter distance. You come in, you're like, I know three hours isn't going to end me. Whereas when you first start doing three hour races and you don't have that experience, it's such a daunting task. Whereas now having done these longer classics, having done some grand tours, you come back and you do a shorter race and you're just like a tour for tour of Utah, for example, I came back and did, I did it this year and a six day race after your last race is the Giro d'Italia is like, Oh man, like we're just getting started when you're on day five. <laughs> Whereas like, and so that, that's a nice feeling. It's a good feeling mentally. I still remember the the first time I ever did a hundred mile race. The thing that terrified me the most was what happens if I have to go to the bathroom? <laughs> Reasonable fear to have. Yeah. Paolo had some fascinating points about how training for an event like this is different and also really took us deep inside the last five years of training that turned Mike into a podium finisher at the Worlds. It certainly wasn't a traditional approach. What's different in the training for a race like this versus a more like a domestic three-hour race? Oh, it's 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 pretty massive difference. Well, the preparation uh, leading up to Worlds actually started uh, with Mike and I in um, probably as early as June, where he he came out to. Uh, I, I live in Montreal, just outside of Montreal, Quebec, and I live in the countryside, and I have a, a motor pace scooter, and uh, he came out to do a. Um, a sort of a mini training camp where we were going to sort of put him through some of the stressors that uh, he would encounter, not just for uh, the Vuelta, but for the Worlds. I really felt Worlds was super well suited for him. Uh, you know, they say horses for courses and and Mike's Worlds this year, was it was perfectly suited for him. And so what we what we would do in, in the training camp this summer, and it was, we only do three or four day blocks. We don't do much longer than that because I like to hit the pointy end of the stick hard for a few days, overload him, super stimulate him and have him recover for a longer period of time. But when we do do the quality work, it's very high intensity. It's actually faster than race pace for much of it for different types of climbs that we wanted to do. So what, one of the key workouts that I remember we did with Mike is about 250K uh, behind the motor scooter through the uh, mountainside of uh, upstate uh, Vermont doing about 5,000 meters of, uh, of climbing. And every climb we did was all either tempo-based, you know, anywhere from 5.5 to 6 watts per kilo, or it was over-unders where we did a lot of what I call anaerobic repeatability on climbs. So we would have him hold, let's say, a base pace of 5 or 5.5 watts per kilo, and then he'd have to surge with the scooter to 6.5 and then back down, and then surge again with the scooter to 7 watts per kilo and then back down, but always holding between five and 5.5 watts per kilo, which is exactly what happens in a race. You know, you can't just give it a full gas effort and then get dropped off the back of the pack when they catch you. So we did a lot of work like that. And it actually started in June. Go ahead. You had a, a, a comment. No, actually, Chris and I are still trying to catch up after your comment. We were doing a lot of tempo work at 5.5 to 6 watts per kilogram. That's the first time I've ever <laughs> used those two things put together. Normally, it's I was dying for a minute at six watts per kilogram, not I was, <laughs> not I was doing tempo work. <laughs> yeah, the numbers are pretty crazy when you think about it. I mean, and I work with, with different athletes at different levels. So Mike's about the top of the spectrum there in terms of physiological capacity. Uh, VO2 max is uh, fairly high. And, uh, you know, coming from a running background, he's uh, all, all we had to do was really over the years was convert him peripherally to become a cyclist, you know, and obviously tactically, but just to, to touch back on the, on the, the, the lead up to, uh, to worlds, yep. people would be surprised at how little 
specificity we did in training because remember Mike's racing 80 times a year so I mean he's he's doing the Giro he's doing the Vuelta so really by the time we looked at trying to fit little places where we can include a little bit of specificity there were only really a couple of places and that first one was in June and the other one was when he went to do his altitude prep in July prior to Utah where we did a little bit of work there and then one week or so before Worlds where we did some some sharpening repeatability work just to kind of wake up the system a little bit and, and get his uh, his uh, periphery firing and, and get his body back used to those types of efforts. Um, obviously not for, for a seven hour workout, but you know, uh, uh, even on the Wednesday before Worlds, he did almost a five and a half hour ride with, you know, some anaerobic power repeatability. And we take a very non-traditional approach to preparation for uh, bike racing. Uh, that's the beautiful thing about working with Mike is that in a sport like cycling that has a lot of innovation in it, it's quite conservative in nature. And so I, I know that Mike comes from a running background. He had no knowledge of cycling conditioning protocols in any way. So I had the luxury to be able to not fool him, but just tell him to follow this approach and see if it's going to work. And the approach that we take with him is one that's much more rooted in, in qualitatively based training than it is volume, volumetrically based training. And it worked super well. Over the last four and a half years, he's made a sort of a meteoric rise. And uh, there's something to this, this approach. Obviously, you know, you can't apply it to every athlete, but it's certainly uh, exciting for me to, uh, go through a process of experimentation with an athlete and have him end up at, at a world-class level and finishing, you know, third in the world in, uh, in four years or five years. So can you tell us a little bit more about this approach? Because when he described it to us uh, during an interview with him, it sounded very much like a, a classic polarized approach to training. No, because I don't know if he talked to you a little bit about his four or five year buildup, but what I mean by non-traditional is that when we first started working together, I mean, if you look at the, the sort of the traditional pyramid of building your foundational base in the beginning of the year, adding miles and miles and miles of aerobic endurance, and then slowly shortening that triangles peak up a little bit and putting layers of lactate threshold based kind of intervals or aerobic threshold based intervals. And then you start to add, you know, anaerobic power development, and then you start to sharpen for races. That's your, that's your typical periodization model. In, in many endurance sports. And I actually flipped that upside down. I flipped it upside down to the point where we did very little base conditioning in the first two years. And almost all of it was based on uh, intensity. How much intensity could he handle? How quickly can we shift his periphery to be able to manage the loads that he's going to encounter on the bike? And where's when are we going to hit the point where we then have to introduce more volume-based training? So what Mike is describing to you is maybe the last year we've added another layer of, in, of endurance-based pieces to it. But over the first three or four years to get there, it really was flipped on its head. And every year we would reduce a teeny bit the intensity and actually add a little bit more volume. So it's actually the reverse of what people might think uh, when they're preparing an athlete over a four to a six year or even two quadrennials leading into the Olympic Games, you know? And, and that's what I mean by it being different. The other thing we do uh, a lot of is capacity. Like Mike, when he came to um, Dunham, which is uh, our place in Quebec, we did a ride where we did uh, about a five and a half hour motor pace. And in that five and a half hour motor pace, our process was to take a certain duration and to 
try and do maximal, maximal capacity within that duration, much like a track cyclist might do in a, in a 4K all-out pursuit. Uh, and what we're trying to do with him in, in a case like that is we're trying to push up that ceiling that tends to hold all of us down. And by, by super stimulating him in a way that he never really encounters in a race, because when you're in a race, you have a lot of elements of fatigue, you have strategy, you have the course, you have the team role that you play that never really provide you with an environment to be able to actually stimulate that. But in training, we can do it. So that's another non-traditional approach. So we would do a lot of motor pacing whereby we would say, okay, on, on, the, on the next piece in the next 20K, when we hit that climb, it's a three, it's a three minute, four minute climb. I'm not even going to give you any targets. You're going to do it all out from the gun. And that stimulus made a big difference in pushing up his ceiling. So what happens is when you push up that ceiling of capacity, then everything underneath that ceiling, relatively speaking, becomes a little bit easier and takes a little bit out of you, a little bit less out of you. So that was sort of the logic I used in that. And obviously you can't do that type of training on a regular basis, but when you're rested and you have the, the time to recover from something like that, because it takes three, four, five days to recover from something like that, then it's well worth it to push up the ceiling. So with, with athletes who are plateaued and stuck in a place where they haven't really moved up, that's an approach I use. And, and, and not to say that Mike was plateaued, but I like to use that once in a while with guys like Mike, because I don't want them to get, I hate to use his nickname, Rusty, but your body can get rusty. And, and, and we always want to delve into homeostasis. We always want to go down a little bit. So it's continuously trying to push the stimulation envelope to get them into the right place so that everything underneath that envelope is easier. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it's, it's fascinating. I've definitely heard other people talk about that approach of, so first coach I ever worked with, the, the way he described it was, if you always ride at 20 miles an hour, you get really good at riding 20 miles an hour, but you never get good at riding 30 miles an hour. Right. And it was that yeah. idea of you have to, to push that envelope. You have to, even if it's just for a minute or two, and this is how old I am, this is pre-power meters or anything else, so we talk speed, but it was that even if it's only for a minute, you got to go ride at 30 miles an hour. And then the next time you might be able to do a couple minutes. And then it slowly builds up as your body gets used to that. And then all of a sudden, 20 miles an hour becomes really easy. Yeah, it's, it's the same kind of concept. Exactly. And he was hitting numbers there that were actually quite outstanding. I mean, he was doing some eight and nine and 10 watt per kilo efforts that were longer than anyone I've ever worked with wow. uh, has been able to do. So it was, it was pretty fantastic to see, you know, and that's when I knew I said, this kid, He's got a shot at Worlds this year. Uh, with those kinds of numbers, he can drop most riders on this planet, especially if it's a if it comes down to a standing climb slugfest. I actually thought when I watched the race, I watched it in a bar in Innsbruck. I thought he was going to drop those guys, and you know, he I think he still could have, but uh, you know, he's now the next step with Mike is he's got to learn how to win in a sense. Like now that he's here, all of a sudden he's like, oh my god, I'm here. Now I got to figure out how to win this stuff. Let's get back to the conversation and Mike's thoughts on what's next for him. I was, I was just going to ask, knowing all of the things that help you progress, what is your ceiling? What do you do next to make sure that you win Worlds the next time? 
instead of coming in third. No pressure. Well, I literally just sat down with Paul and my coach today. We had a coffee and we talked about this. Like, what? Like, what? How, is there another layer that we can break into from a training perspective? Uh, physiologically, can I improve? I think I can still improve in a lot of realms, but the biggest inroads I'm going to make still are in execution in the final portion of the race. I've I've gone to a point now where I'm able to execute and perform and 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 tap into my strengths physiologically at the key moments of a race from from a climbing perspective but I I still haven't figured out how to to truly win a race on a regular basis and a consistent basis and that that, that that's a leap that I'm going to have to make that is going to take some improvement mentally it's going to take some improvement tactically and it's going to take some improvement in the bike handling skills department so I think yeah, I think there, there's there is room for me to improve big time, and I'm excited to to tackle those things, especially this off season. So why don't we finish up with just translating this for us mortals out there who are are doing just the three four hour races? What would be your take homes or suggestions? What can we we learn from the sort of training that you're doing, or, or from what you've experienced with doing a race like Worlds? Yeah, I think um, the biggest thing. In- I think Mike and I both kind of said it is uh, to not give uh, your mental side of things enough credit. That's a, that's a huge, huge part of, of training, whether it's the mental preparation to do these workouts over and over again. And like that, that has a lot of value in like when it gets hard in races, you've done it in training. So like how Mike was saying, he knew that he could do a four minute effort and like he was doing the same and could do those same numbers in the race that adds up from training and racing. And then also just, Rest isn't always just for the body. A lot of times, you know, our bodies are fine and can recover fast and massage and chiro and all these things snap you back physically very quickly. But a lot of times rushing back to, uh, to training and, uh, or not taking enough time to, uh, you know, recover from training to, uh, to a race can put you mentally in a much bigger hole than, um, you'd ever think you'd be physically. Yeah. And I think we both kind of did that. Like you did this big block and then recovered in order to be ready for the race and it was the same thing with me i did this big block and like was confident in the work i had done and then was able to chill and freshen up mentally for this race as well because like you said yeah being fresh mentally is so important that was another episode of fast talk as always we love your feedback email us at fasttalk at velonews.com subscribe to fast talk on itunes stitcher soundcloud and google play be sure to leave us a rating and a comment while you're there, check out our sister podcast, the Vela News Podcast, which covers news about the week in cycling. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash News and on Twitter at twitter.com slash News. Fast Talk is a joint production between Vela News and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed in Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Chris Case, Michael Woods, Rob Britton, Paolo Saldana, and Sierra O'Grady, I'm Trevor Connor. Thanks for listening.